You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and hematologist and an LLS volunteer. And I want to thank you all so much for joining us for this episode. Today we'll be joined by Dr. Fred Applebaum, who is the Executive Vice President and Deputy Director of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center uh, in Seattle, and also Professor and Chairman of the Division of Medical Oncology at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle. Fred, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. So I want to, if possible, take you back probably about 40 years in your career, but I also was a Tufts medical student, and I also had Dr. Robert Schwartz for my first month on the wards as a third-year student. So I actually wanted to ask you, what got you into bone marrow transplant? What were some of those experiences, both in med school and in training, that helped you make that choice? So that's a great question, Ken, and I'm glad you brought up Bob's name because he was instrumental. In 1970, I was uh, in the library studying, and I happened to be leafing through the journal Blood, and there was one of the first articles uh, describing Don Thomas's attempts at trying to do a bone marrow transplant in a patient who had end-stage refractory leukemia. It was a great article. There, this peripheral blood was filled with leukemia. They gave this patient a high-dose chemotherapy and radiation therapy. The leukemia went away. They gave the patient his sister's bone marrow, and it engrafted, and he got into a complete remission. Unfortunately, he did eventually die with an infection, but it just seems so amazing that you could actually transplant bone marrow. I took that article to Bob Schwartz, and I asked Bob, Professor Schwartz to me then. And I said, Professor Schwartz, could this be something? And as you remember, Bob had sort of a gravelly voice, and he said, uh, yeah, Fred, uh, this could be important. He had been working on immunosuppression to try and allow people to do grafts initially in kidneys, and so he was very familiar with the work. And he was instrumental in telling me that this really could turn into an important uh, therapy. Interesting. So it sounds like that was sort of the beginning for you. It was and I wanted to ask you also, because I did get to know Bob Schwartz, who was one of my mentors, but I never got to know the Thomases. But if you could share a little bit, too, almost, you know, essentially on a personal level, too, but what was your experience in terms of that early part of your career? What was happening in Seattle? What's inspired you toward the career that you've had? Well, after reading that article, I was entranced by the possibility of marrow transplantation and kept up on the early publications that were coming from Seattle. And then in 1975, I was at the NCI doing my fellowship in a laboratory that was involved with transplantation biology. And I had the first opportunity to actually meet Don Thomas. And he was so understated, quiet, reserved, nothing but the facts. He wouldn't oversell anything. He wouldn't undersell it. Uh, he was, this is the way it is, and these are, these are what we uh, can achieve, and here's what we can't achieve. And it was such a refreshing, truly scientific approach uh, without you know, any hype, uh, without any drama. He believed he could make transplantation work, and he was going to do that, and he was totally, totally focused on that uh, mission. In that era, when which was really the, the beginning of bone marrow transplant. What did a transplant ward look like in terms of 
what was the patient's experience? What was the chance of success? What was the chance of really morbidity and mortality? And then I actually like to move, take that and sort of move, move closer to the present and to the future even. Sure. So, you know, Don believed that he could make transplants work because he had had a a rare success in a patient who had an identical twin. And then in the late 1960s, the idea of HLA and histocompatibility was coming to the fore. And Don had worked out in animal models that he could do transplants between siblings uh, that were not genetic twins. Uh, And so he went into the clinic uh, around 1970. The first 16 patients in a row all died. They were all end-stage leukemic patients, uh, but many of them probably died quicker because of the attempts to make transplantation work. And then finally, there was an occasional success, patients coming out uh, months to a year, and this was uh, incredibly encouraging to Don. And then when he looked back at the first 100 patients with uh, end-stage leukemia that they transplanted, they saw that there was a developing a plateau on the curve. Now, it was a low plateau. It was only around 15%. But these were 15 patients that would otherwise certainly be dead. And they were now uh, going beyond five years, that magical point where we say they were probably cured. That gave the group uh, incredible optimism to move forward. And then we started doing transplants earlier in the course of the disease before patients had end-stage leukemia. And in 1975, we started doing transplants in patients who were in first remission, and suddenly survival rates jumped from uh, 15% up to 50 to 60%, and sometimes higher than that. It was a very difficult, it still is a difficult process. I, I don't mean to ever say it's, it's simple. It's not. There's lots of toxicities. Uh, but back then, we had very few antiemetics. Our ability to treat infections was very, very limited. We had nothing for CMV. We had nothing for a number of other fungal infections. And so it was a very, very tough. Uh, we limited transplants to patients who were under age 40 and who had HLA identical siblings or identical twins. We didn't think a person beyond age 40 could possibly survive the transplant, even if they were a healthy Marine going in. But then, as we developed better anti-emetics, and that made a huge difference, better venous access with the development of Hickman catheters, with the development of drugs that could prevent uh, pneumocystis uh, with the use of Bactrim, the development eventually of gancyclovir and fluconazole prophylaxis, we started seeing every year gradual improvements. Uh, And it was these small stepwise approaches that really helped make a difference. We also learned that we didn't have to give the very highest doses of radiation that a person could tolerate, that you could sometimes pull your punches a little bit and still get enough of an anti-leukemic effect, both from the preparative regimen and from the graft-versus-leukemia effect. And so we started doing transplants in patients over age 50, then over age 60, and as as the investigators aged, um, we started doing them up to age uh, 75 and even up to uh, in the late 70s today. In survival now, you talked about initially survival of 15%, now survival rates over, potentially over 50%, even higher. What's been the relative contribution, of, as you look at it, of better supportive care, of perhaps better preparative regimens, or better availability of uh, matched donors? How have all those different factors played into such a nice improvement in, in five-year survival? 
It's an interesting question, and we have published two papers that address that. We published a paper in 2010 in the New England Journal, and we just have published a paper just last month in Annals, where we looked at about 1,500 patients that we transplanted between 1993 and 1997. We compared that to another over 1,000 patients we transplanted a decade later, 2003 to 2007, and then another 1,000 patients between 2013 and 2017. And we saw improvements in almost every single area of morbidity and mortality. So we saw much less venoocclusive disease, that's liver toxicity. We saw fewer patients that developed renal failure. We saw fewer patients that developed respiratory failure. We saw fewer patients that developed bacterial, fungal, or viral diseases, and fewer patients that relapsed. And so it does take a village. It's uh, having better infectious disease support. It is having uh, better pharmacologic support. So we target busulfan to precise levels. It's better immunology with better methods to select donors and better methods to prevent graft-versus-host disease. Every one of them contribute, and I think it's very difficult to say that one outweighs all the rest. Probably among the most important things, frankly, are better antifungal drugs, better antiviral drugs, and I think the ability to pick the preparative regimen of the right intensity to fit the patient. Now, I've heard you lecture on the topic, and I want to see if I have this right, but it sounds like the choice of donor source, and for that matter, the choice of preparative regimen, many of these may be equal to each other. That visit, initially, it seemed like it would have to be a matched, absolutely HLA match related donor. Can you say a little bit more about donor choice, and then we'll move on with that to other topics? I think you're exactly right, and I think it's a very insightful question that you're asking. As we have improved Improved in these various areas, we find that the differences between, for example, a completely matched sibling and a matched unrelated start to diminish, probably because we have better methods for controlling graft-versus-host disease. We are paying less of a price for infection, and we are seeing better immune reconstitution. Uh, so the differences that we used to see become somewhat less. And now, with the development of the use of post-transplant cytoxin as one example, the outcomes between a matched related donors, matched unrelated donors, and even haploidentical transplants are diminishing. And that's really important because, you know, if, if I think back to the early parts of my career, we would only have the potential to do a transplant in at best one in three patients because that was the percentage that would have a matched sibling. Then in 1978, we did our first unrelated donor transplant, and that expanded the reach of transplantation uh, enormously. But really, it did it mostly, in the United States at least, for Caucasians. It was very hard to find matched unrelated donors for African Americans, difficult for Hispanics, and, and almost impossible for people of mixed uh, ethnic uh, origins. But then when we started to be able to do cord blood transplants and haploidentical transplants, today we can find an appropriate or acceptable donor for the vast majority of patients in need of a transplant, probably in excess of 95%. So I've heard you, when speaking also, address the issue of patients who don't get to transplant. That, And I've heard you actually quote, numbers of patients in the United States who potentially would be eligible, and the number that are actually arriving and, and having a transplant, where's the break in the process that they're not getting to this modality of treatment that's potentially life-saving? 
Well, you know, I can't, I don't mean to apologize for our healthcare system, nor, nor am I a proponent of it, but there's lots of barriers. You know, to get a transplant, of course, the patient needs to have the right uh, initial care, that is that they get uh, identified as a potential transplant candidate early on, uh, that typing is carried out, uh, that they're referred uh, for the uh, possible transplant. And so I think there are certainly areas where physicians are not as aware of the potential life-saving benefits of transplantation, and it is, in some cases, I think, a fault of our healthcare system in the sense of not identifying those patients early enough and referring them. Then there's a whole other huge uh, problem, which is that to get a transplant, a patient needs to travel to a transplant center. They have to have the economic and family support to be able to uh, undergo a therapy that is going to take literally months to undergo the transplant, and probably they're going to be away from meaningful employment for a year to undergo the transplant, and they have to have a way to support themselves uh, through that. Even if they have health insurance that doesn't pay for the living expenses, it doesn't pay for the family support that's needed. And so there are all these barriers to transplantation. So part of it is physicians understanding who should be referred and doing it in a timely manner. And then some of it is the supportive care, the support that people need to undergo the procedure. And then finally, I should say, the last thing is, is there are also personal, personal choices. You know, yes, a transplant might be able to cure a 70-year-old of myelodysplasia, but it's a tough road to go, and some people may say, you know, it just isn't worth it to me to undergo that kind of risky procedure with the toxicities that are associated with it, that, you know, I've had a great 70 years. I'd like to uh, take a less aggressive approach, uh, and that is perfectly reasonable, and I think it's a, an important conversation that all transplant and primary, everyone in the healthcare world has to have with the, the patients. Uh, it has to be done sensitively, it has to be done carefully, it has to be done honestly. I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that because I find in oncology, many times we use euphemisms. We talk about the disease has progressed or, you know, essentially when we're talking about someone dying, we talk about there's been disease progression. And so a lot of the discussions are not as candid as they should be. So let me ask you about what you've learned about this over a, a, a very good career. But in terms of that level what level of communication is needed, is, is imperative in, for patients who are going into a transplant? Well, first of all, I think that it's important for physicians in talking to families to start out by asking families what do they want. Some individuals do not want to hear absolute statistics. They would rather hear generalizations. I think that's the exception. I think the vast majority of patients ultimately do want to know precise statistics. And the most important issue, I think, is that when I'm talking with a, with a patient, I as hard as it is, I try to imagine that I'm on the other side of the table. What do I want to know? What would I want to hear? And I, I think that that degree of sensitivity or empathy is something that is incredibly important. I try to be uh, as explicit with patients and as honest with patients as I possibly can. They deserve it. And I totally agree with you. Let me uh, sort of project into the future with you. You've, you've been part of the development of bone marrow transplant from early on till now, what do you see as sort of the next things that are going to happen in the field of, of allo transplant? So when we do a transplant, we are transplanting a new immune system into a patient. 
And we are getting so good at that that we can do it with approaching almost 100% safety. We're not quite there yet, but for example, in aplastic anemia, we are now, and I shouldn't, uh, I'm knock on wood when I say this, but I think we are somewhere around 30 for 30 in our last 30 patients that have been transplanted and followed for more than two years. If we look back further than that, we're, you know, we still were well above 90% in the group before that. So if you can give a patient, a new immune system, that means that you should be able to cure almost every autoimmune disease. We've had, for example, patients who've had leukemia and also had Crohn's disease. We treated their leukemia, their Crohn's disease went away. And so that raises the possibility of using transplantation for autoimmune diseases. It raises the possibility of doing a transplant before you do a kidney transplant. Uh, If you did that, the kidney would last forever. You would not have to be on any immune suppression for the rest of your life because you would be the bone marrow and kidney would be tolerant of one another. Um, so these are possibilities. But getting more to what we are doing with leukemia, I think the fact that we can now we see both the ability to get the transplant in very easily, and we also are understanding more and more about the graft versus leukemia effect. What cells are seeing the leukemia as being foreign? what they're seeing on the leukemia. And we now are developing genetic engineering techniques where we can take out lymphocytes, we can put in receptors into them, and we can get those cells to expand. And of course, the poster child for that is the CD19 cars, but there's also the, mm-hmm. the B-cell maturation antigen, uh, so the B- BMCA for um, multiple myeloma. Um, We have for WT1 now for uh, AML. Um, And so I think where we're moving is we'll be doing transplants, but we'll be using less intensive preparative regimens. We will be then supplementing the transplant with the genetically engineered T cells that can specifically target the malignancy and get the best of both worlds. Can you divorce the the bone marrow portion of it and the blood cell portion of it from the immune system? Or do they both have to go together by definition? Well, I think that'll be one of the big questions is, can CAR T cells for CD19 ALL supplant allogeneic transplantation altogether? And that may prove to be the case for certain individuals. And I think if it did, that would be really terrific. Will CAR T cells uh, supplant autologous transplants uh, for myeloma? They may. We don't know that yet. But there is the possibility that they will actually act synergistically. And there's good laboratory evidence uh, that in certain circumstances that happens. I mean, at the end of the day, the more tools we have, the better that we'll be able to ultimately treat our patients. And I think it's premature at this time to think that transplants are going to be supplanted by CAR T cells Mm -hmm. or to conclude that they won't be. I, I think we just don't know. Yeah, but it's a very exciting time. Absolutely. To look at all these different tools that have been added. And looking at these two fields, which are so closely related in many ways, allo transplant and CAR-T, what have been some of the lessons that, for example, on the transplant side have been learned from all this interesting work in CAR-T and vice versa? Well, you know, the CAR-T story really did evolve from marrow transplantation. Back in the 70s, we published a paper, a landmark paper in the late 70s, showing that relapse rates were much lower after allogeneic transplantation than after twin transplants, which meant that there must be an allogeneic effect, that there were T-cells 
that were coming from the bone marrow that were seeing the leukemia and were rejecting it. We then, because we knew that, uh, we then found out, could we actually transfer immune cells? And the very first transfer of antigen-specific T cells was done in the setting of marrow transplantation, where we took donor T cells that were specific for CMV, and we transferred them to patients who were CMV seropositive and showed that you could reconstitute CMV immunity back to what a normal person would have by doing that. So we now could show that you could transfer antigen-specific T cells. And then once you could do that, then the question became, well, could you identify T cells that were specific for a target and transfer those? And that's how we got into the whole CAR T cell field. Uh, The initial CAR T cells only had the antigen uh, recognition and did not have co-stimulation, which is why they did not work very well, and it was the insight that you needed to have co-stimulation that came from the Sloan Kettering that really helped propel the field uh, as well. So multiple people have contributed. I'm not saying it all came from Seattle. It didn't. There were multiple people that were really very important in in this uh, all along the way. But the initial insight that it was the immune system that could get rid of the leukemia and that you should be able to transfer lymphocytes to get that done did have its origin in the area of transplantation. And now, I think what we're finding is that some of the reasons for failure of transplantation, that is, for example, when people lose class 2 expression, are some of the same kinds of things we're going to see uh, with CAR T cells. Uh, That is, that you will find cells that will no longer express the target antigen, uh, and that's going to be one of the mechanisms for failure. So uh, we're learning a lot, both from transplantation and from the CAR T cell field, about the fact that we probably have to target multiple antigens, that we have to figure figure out a way to get to the disease before it has wildly mutated. Do these therapies when patients have end-stage disease, some results are not going to be as good. And so we're learning, I think, in, in both fields simultaneously. All the progress has really been from the tremendous research teams like yours have been doing. What do you need to make that more successful? It's been a blessing for me personally to be involved with a, a group of investigators like we've had at, at the Hutch. Um, it really is a, a team effort. It takes everything from nurses to uh, dietitians to pharmacists to the laboratory researchers and, and the clinical researchers. And they can't do their work. We can't do our work unless uh, we have adequate support. And that support, fortunately, has come from the government in the form of grants. It's also come from societies like uh, LLS, where we have had great support to do the research we need. It is true that the final step often requires working with pharma to get these therapies to patients. That is incredibly important. But pharma, for all of its achievements and for all of its insights, doesn't do very much of the primary work that's necessary to make the initial insights to develop these therapies. And that's going to continue to require funding through the government, grants and contracts, and through uh, the generosity of citizens in giving donations to societies and to institutions. And I just can't emphasize uh, how valuable that has been and how I believe we really have shown that there is an amazing return on investment. If you just look at the survival rates in patients with hematologic I don't think there's a a clear example of a profound return on investment for donors. I agree. Again, this is Dr. Ken Miller, and this is a LLS podcast series for professionals treating blood cancers. Today, we were joined by Dr. Fred Applebaum, who is the executive vice president and deputy director of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center and a wonderful role model. Fred, thanks so much for being with us. It was fun. It was great talking to you, Ken. You too.
Thank you all for listening to this informative podcast. For a listing of all of our healthcare professional podcasts, continuing education activities, and healthcare professional resources, visit www.lls.org forward slash CE. And also for any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and other support resources. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.